This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Hey, everyone. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. This week, we're talking about a name that's been popping up in the headlines recently. One of the musical greats, the premier balladeer, Luther Vandross. In his lifetime, he won eight Grammy Awards and was nominated for 33. Luther's music changed the sound of R&B. He created a new standard, and his songs have become a staple for just about every major life event. Weddings, family reunions, and even a few births. This year also marks 20 years since Luther's last performance at Radio City Music Hall in 2003. We're going to sing them all for you tonight. Every last one of them. Two months later, Vandross suffered a debilitating stroke, and in 2005, he passed away. And though he lives on in our hearts and on our playlists, the icon status held by artists like Whitney and Aretha has escaped Luther. There's no Luther biopic, no tell-all memoir, no unsung episode. But recently, plans were announced for the first ever feature-length documentary on the legendary singer's life and career, produced by Jamie Foxx, Colin Firth, and Sony Music. Today, we're revisiting my conversation with veteran music journalist Craig Seymour, author of Luther, The Life and Longing of Luther Vandross. We make the case for why Luther should be on the Mount Rushmore of American music. Craig Seymour, welcome to It's Been a Minute. It's so great to have you. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We're about to talk one of my favorite topics. I definitely think He's one of your favorite topics. We're going to be talking Luther today. Yes, Luther. Yes. Luther. <laughs> Luther, exactly. But but let me go back. Let me go back some. You interviewed Luther quite a bit over the years, and you spent you know a decent amount of time with him. What's a memory that always makes you laugh or smile when you think about Luther? Luther trips me out. Luther always, I mean, he stayed making me laugh. He respected me and respected what I was trying to ask, but he also knew that there were certain limitations to what he was going to say. So I just remember this time this one guy came over and he's like, he's like, oh, Luther, oh, and they were hugging and stuff like that. He's, and he, they were talking and Luther's like, oh, yeah, but I'll get back to you. I'm doing this interview with this person, Craig Seymour from Vibe. He was like, yeah, <laughs> Craig's trying to pump me for all this information that he ain't going to get. But whatever, <laughs> I'm just going to sit here and mind my business and blah, blah, blah. I just love things like that. <laughs> that was just very, very funny. How do you want us to remember Luther's legacy? I mean, if I had to cut it down to one thing, which you do have to do in history, uh, I feel like he's something on the lines of like the great R&B interpreter. His greatest artistry is the way that he could break down songs and interpret songs and make it like you never heard them before and make them speak so viscerally to your experience. Yes, like a house is not a home is a staple Luther track, but is actually a Dionne Warwick song. And, you know, even she said, that's Luther's song. Like, it's his now. Just to compare, I'm going to play Dionne's version of the song. I'm not meant to live alone. 
Okay, now let's hear Luther's version. You know, you said that that Luther took ballads to new epic heights. You know, he's got the world building and the lyricism and the runs and the phrasing. What's one song that you think really encapsulates Luther's excellence in balladry? I would go with Superstar Until You Come Back to Me. But on the last live album he recorded, I think what he does with House Is Not A Home is really, you really get everything that he's doing with a ballad and how he can both make it a statement connecting people and connecting people's sense of loneliness. And Luther hated when people would misinterpret his music and call him things like Dr. Love or, ooh, you make all those baby-making things. And, you know, and, and just I know how much smoke I got when I brought it up. I mean, he would not let you call him, ooh, you're Dr. Love. You have them love. So, ooh, if you want to get him mad, you say that. Or, and if you said, oh, you know, you make them baby-making songs, he was like, I do not want to be associated with the bedroom. You know, I am about the heart and romance and everything like that. Do not. And I was like, well, why, Luther, why are you so salty? Like, what's, what's the tea? Why, why, why is this, of all things, get under your skin? He says, it, it takes away from my artistry and what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be the premier balladeer of my time, not the, you know, knock the boots person. Something that comes up in your book is that a lot of the people that Luther worked with found him to be difficult and demanding, but you see it differently. One lesson I learned so much about just excellence in that is that this was Mm -hmm. when his song, Take You Out, was coming out. But again, this was a new date. The Mm -hmm. the new band and singers did not know it. So... um, they were singing and everything like that. And I'm grooving and not too well, you know. <laughs> right? I mean, it's a groove, it's a groove kind of song. Thank you. Can I take you out tonight? And then all of a sudden he says, stop, 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 stop. And I'm going like, mm, <laughs> And he said, because one of the lyrics is, um, take you out to a movie. He said, somebody said movies. Somebody said movies. It's a movie. It's one movie. We're only going to see one movie tonight. It's a movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, dang. But then he explained to me later, he's like, you don't understand. My background singers are at the top of their craft. They right. want to be corrected. They want to do it right. So I'm simply telling them the correct lyric. And just to see that level of Black excellence and all of mm. these creative black people striving for that kind of excellence over something that some of us would just think would be like, who cares? You know, black excellence is a process. It's mm. something you have to commit to. And that's what Luther and his band were all about. And I just found that so um, inspiring. Luther was exacting, but that's what made him great. 
and what ultimately allowed him to befriend the greats. Luther's hot celebrity gossip after this quick break. What's happening on NPR Podcasts? More neighborhoods and more perspectives. The more of the world that you hear, the more you hear the world as it really is. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. The day's top headlines, local stories from your community, your next podcast binge listen. You can have it all in one place, your pocket. Download the NPR app today. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Now, here's the thing some of you might not know. Luther's story is entwined with some of music's biggest stars. He shared fried chicken and soap opera gossip sessions with Aretha Franklin when they were in the studio together. He used to go shopping with Patti LaBelle and Whitney Houston opened for Luther when she was just starting out. And his career was star-studded from the beginning. Ooh, he was just able to get such an an early, a middle school graduate degree education in just watching the greats. I mean, Mm. he grew up going to the Apollo, seeing artists like Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells, seeing all the Motown stars. He was in a group that was put together by the owners of the Apollo. And then with his first big gig, with his first big break, was with David Bowie. Where right. he's arranging out of going from never having arranged a song for anybody to arranging vocals on young Americans, like a definitive rock and roll classic. And then Bowie right. takes him on tour. I mean, he was playing the top venues in the world because he was with David Bowie. Right. And David also always made him open the show, which was disastrous. He was the first person to <laughs> put him out, to put him out in front of a crowd he like that. He made him open the show, singing his little. Songs, <laughs> I mean, you know, but, and then and, and Luther would go to him and say, David, these people hate me. They're throwing tomatoes. They're doing this. They're hooing it. It doesn't matter what they do. You are fantastic. Go out there and get what you need from them and learn from them. That's all that matters. So you just can't get that kind of training anywhere. As much as Luther was trained by some greats, Luther trained a whole lot of greats that have gone on to work with other people. So um, for like Cindy Mazel, who works with Mariah Carey, you know, Luther did upgrade the entire R&B vocal and performing experience. It's like a disco ball that shatters. It's just you can see pieces of it reflected, refracted everywhere. Hmm. You know, I mean, continuing on the idea of Luther's influence, like he also changed the way R&B performances were produced from the staging to the costumes and beyond. Talk to me about what Luther did to change the game in that respect. I mean, Luther made the R&B show become a theatrical experience because a show that you would see 
in the early 70s would be like whether you saw it in a club or a big stadium or whatever. It's going, it was the same show. You know, and it'd be entertaining and people would be singing and there'd be a lot of moving and dancing mm-hmm. on the stage and stuff like that. But it didn't give you theater. It didn't give you sort of like you were being taken on a very controlled journey. I mean, I saw the Mothership Land Parliament Funkadelic. That was one of my wow. earliest experiences. And that was incredible to see this wow. mothership, you know, to see this yeah. thing land from the sky. But it was more giving you like sci-fi vibes. It wasn't giving you mm. theater. Where Luther really had this whole presentation where I felt more like I was seeing something that I'd seen on Broadway, like The Wiz or something. And just his banter with the audience. It wasn't just random. Hey, GC, are you here? It wasn't just random. I mean, he had jokes. The songs went into each other in a a way that made sense. He had like a ballerina Mm. perform on top of a piano. Just all of these elements really helped bring in the age of the concert as a experience that's different from just somebody showing up and performing. Right. I mean, you mentioned in the book that like when you would see people streaming into his concerts, they would be wearing things to go see a concert that, I mean, I remember seeing my parents get dressed to go see Luther and artists like him. My father be wearing a suit. My mom was wearing like a cocktail dress at the very least and putting on a fur coat. There was a certain level of polish that the audience brought also to the space, almost like they were anticipating Luther was going to bring it. So they needed to bring it as well. It was a celebration of Black elegance away from the white gaze, where it was just we were showing each other how fabulous, look how fabulous we are. Mm. So I I wonder, where do you see the influence of Luther's showmanship in live R&B performance today? Certain artists do really take their time and lean into the emotion of the song and make sure that the song is not just something that people are snapping along to, but we really get to experience every line and every emotional journey of the song. And I definitely feel a person like Jasmine Sullivan does that really, really well. Don't forget to come and pick up Every time I go to a Beyonce show, I see Luther, I feel Luther's spirit. You know, and just knowing how much Beyonce's mother, Miss Tina Knowles, was a Luther fan and went to all those shows and how Im- much of an influence she was in the early days of shaping Beyonce's aesthetic. Mm. You know, okay, so I grew up with my parents listening to Luther. Like, Luther to me has always been a musical institution. But one of the things that I've come to understand through your writing is that Luther presented a change in the sound of R&B. How did Luther change the sound of R&B? Well, Luther changed the sound of R&B because, along with other people, R&B became much more smooth in the 70s. Around the time that Luther was developing and not yet succeeding, you had a whole bunch of jazz-influenced vocalists who were doing R&B, and that sound was very smooth and very different from what had come before. So, And that's those are the artists that became to define what was known as the Quiet Storm. You have people like Phyllis Hyman, Angela Bofill, Michael Henderson. Those people were really kind of smoothing out 
R&B and making it a little bit more elevated, but coming from a, the point of view of jazz training. And so then you have Luther kind of on that same wave. It was kind of a reflection of just how people had migrated away from the South and were kind of trying to form these new, more cosmopolitan identities for themselves. But it was just kind of like these amplified and sort of upgraded expressions of Black elegance. Like, um, you know, the kind of thinking Mm. of like how elegance was such a form of resistance for Black folks throughout history. Like, people can call you whatever, but if you could dust off your clothes to put on your Sunday best to walk to church, then that's a form of resistance. That's a Mm -hmm. statement of self-worth. And Luther really brought that into his music and to his concerts. Because musically, he refused to have to use outmoded forms of black expressions, what he would probably say, like a whole lot of screaming and shouting, to represent the contemporary (laughs) black experience. Because he wasn't, you know, he wasn't like a former working out in the fields that stumbled into a recording studio and started singing the blues or anything like that. Luther Vandross was a cosmopolitan New Yorker, and he wanted to express that. And he's influencing the sound of artists like Anita Baker. And just the Freddie Jacksons, just the kind of smooth people that would come after him. Mm. Talk to me about how Luther's songwriting, presentation, style redefined masculinity in R&B. People talk about how Luther, um, you know, how hard it was for him to get a recording deal and all that kind of stuff. And that was absolutely true. But one of the main sticking points from him getting a recording deal is that he demanded that he had creative control and that he was able to write and record his own material. So what that allowed Luther to do is he was able to redefine masculinity because he was singing songs that he wrote or songs he specifically selected as opposed to singing songs that people were submitting to him that would reflect how a male R&B singer was supposed to sound. So what you then get is these really yearning ballads that don't have, in most cases, don't really have specific pronouns and they're really not so much about sex and seduction as they are about just that kind of longing for romance, longing for connection. Maybe you get the connection for one night and then need it again. You know what I mean? It's like, and, you know, a lot of people were talking about, you know, Luther's sexuality, his own sexuality and everything like that, and think sometimes he was being coy. But he really wasn't. It was the text itself. It wasn't the subtext. Luther produced and wrote for Aretha. He toured with Lionel Richie, but still the mainstream crossover and many of the Grammys that he wanted and was nominated for evaded him. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Well, it was this kind of thing that, I mean, there's so many things about it in terms of how Black artists were controlled in the 80s. And how he didn't play the game. He, for example, in there were in, in music departments there were black departments and then the pop departments. Now you Luther would be in the black department and you had to prove that you had a song worthy enough to 
cross over to the pop departments for them to even be able to push it to start getting right. on those pop stations. They would always tell Luther, we can't get your songs on pop radio because of the material, because you write it yourself and everything like that. They did not want to support a black man writing and producing his own material getting onto the pop charts. You know, I keep thinking about, like, Luther's place in music superstardom. And I know that for me, (laughs) as a black millennial, it's only as I've gotten older that I understand the ways in which Luther was snubbed during his lifetime, whenever he would make attempts to cross over or snubbed by larger audiences or white critics or whatever. But also, I have this other thought about why his place in the pop culture ecosystem doesn't quite always reach the same level of superstardom as some people who were his peers or some people who were his mentors or people who he worked for, worked with. I have this theory that you kind of have to be okay with having your personal narrative be out there in order to reach that top level and garner crossover appeal. People have to know your kids' names or they have to have seen your wedding photos or you have to write a searing memoir. And Luther was somebody who was always angling for privacy, why would privacy have been more appealing to him than hitting the upper echelon of pop stardom? Well, I think during the time, because again, we're talking about the 80s and we're talking about AIDS hysteria and very violent, uh, you know, homophobic in terms of rhetoric Mm -hmm. and actual acts of violence rhetoric, there's no way that coming out would have worked for him. There's no way that coming out as a black gay man would have given him any support because the mainstream white gay community just would have had no even understanding or way of supporting him like that. It's like they would probably not even know who he was. Luther was very close to his mother. He wouldn't want to do anything to upset his mother. I think he was juggling Mm. a lot of those type of things. (laughs) When I interviewed him, I really just saw that as kind of like decades long of conversations. And eventually we were going to get to the point where he said, well, I've gotten to this Mm. point where now, you know, I'm I'm old enough. I just want to... Say my truth, and it is what it is. Like Johnny Mathis. Yeah, exactly. Like, I I felt like that was—I really mm-hmm. felt like that was coming, and that it was exciting, you know? And then now what's happened is that the people—which I can understand, like his best friend, Fonzie Thornton, and the people that govern his estate, they don't really want to talk about any of these issues now because, like, Fonzie's protecting his friend, and— I, I would want my friend to do the same thing. <laughs> like, if I told my right, it's like no, it's like it's like just because I died doesn't mean yeah. y'all could just start talking about me. like if I told my <laughs> in friend, a way that I wouldn't have wanted to when I was alive. Yeah, if I told my friend, hey, don't be talking about all the don't let them talk about all this mess after I go. Within well, whether or not you think it's the wise or best thing to do in the moment, if you really a friend, you're gonna stay to that. So I understand, mm. but at the same time, like what has stopped the it being like a biopic from my book. But the the thing about it is. At some point, you do have to talk about somebody's life and the connection of the life to the music. And if you do that, the estate is not going to let the music be in the movie or be in the project. And if you don't do it, there's going to be no audience because you're not really keeping it real with the audience. So it's if it's. I've accepted it. (laughs) It's it's what it is. (laughs) I think that if you just listen to the music you will understand that he's telling us everything that we ever would need to know. And it's not like he's a man that 
you know, it's not like he's a man that had a bunch of lovers and they're all hiding in the woodwork to come out. He had very few people that he ever dealt with. The loneliness he talks about is real. And that's almost realer and more of a part of his identity than mm. any sort of sexual orientation. You know what I mean? And that's why my favorite Luther song is Wait for Love. But wait for love and you're gonna get the chance to love. Wait for love, wait for love. Craig, thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking with me about Luther. My soul needed this today. Thank you. Thank you. You got me all tearing up and stuff. (laughs) All right. Coming up, we're revisiting a conversation with another Grammy winner, Samara Joy. And she's no stranger to Luther Vandross. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just see I can hear it in my head. Gen Z and jazz. Right after this quick break. I'm Brittany Luce and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Want all of NPR without relying on your radio? Visit NPR.org to be connected to your local station wherever you are and wherever the news takes you. Get your vital mix of rigorously reported local and national stories all live, free, and at your fingertips at NPR.org. Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR NPR podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. NPR brings you the updates you need on the day's biggest headlines. The Senate narrowly passed the debt ceiling bill that will prevent the country from defaulting on its loans. Stories from across the world. Knowing how to forage and to live with the land is integral to Amis culture. And down your block. From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. And you can find all of that and more in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. We've been talking about an artist who made timeless classics. And now I want to turn to an artist who's capturing the timelessness of an entire genre. Two-time Grammy winner, Samara Joy. Happens to pass. Her sophomore album, Linger a While, won the Grammy Award for Best Jazz Vocal Album. How you doing? I would like to know you. You brushed me off immediately, gave me the coldest shoulder I've ever received, which made me want to get to know you even more. That's when I ran into you at the bookstore. Her vocals are sumptuous, the melodies agile, the storytelling captivating. And to top it all off, Samara Joy is just 23 years old. Earlier this year, I sat down with the Gen Z jazz singer to learn how she makes music that feels so timeless. Samara Joy, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. The last time a jazz singer won Best New Artist was Esperanza Spalding in 
in 2011. It's unusual for a jazz artist to be represented in this award category. What do you think of that? Even I was like, me? (laughs) Like, am I in this guy? You want me to be here? Being nominated, period, but like being up for Best New Artist Grammy is just unbelievable to me. Yeah, you're known for practicing a difficult vocal style called vocalese. For those unfamiliar, can you explain what it is and how you use it? Mm -hmm. You take a recording, like an instrumental solo that doesn't have words to it, and you put words to it. I use it on my album. One song is entitled Nostalgia by a trumpet player named Fats Navarro. I wrote lyrics to his improvised solo and his composed melody. Nostalgia hit me as I recall the day I knew that I loved you. And the other was already a standard called I'm Confessing That I Love You. I have a confession to make and I try to resist, but I can't help the way that I feel. I love you so. I'm nowhere near you now, but I grew up singing and vocalese is like incomprehensible to me. Thinking about doing that with my voice, it's challenging. Was that something that you grew up doing or was it something that you were trained into? Like, how did you pick it up? Towards the end of college, I had a transcription class, learning solos class. And my professor at the time encouraged me to write lyrics to the solos. I had never done it growing up before, maybe besides everybody knows... um, there I go, there I go, there I go, there I go. Like Moody's Move for Love, that's a vocalese. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but I, I'd never grown up doing it. And I just, I kind of picked it up just because because of encouragement. And then I kind of took it, took it into my own, I guess. Something else that struck me about your music and, and you know, reading into um, other people's reactions and responses to it is how much people from other generations really connect with your music. A song of yours called Nostalgia has gotten quite a response from from people who are generations ahead of you. I mean, that's really cool, considering that's one of the vocalises. A vision of perfection, heaven's very essence that you were. I heard it. I was like, this is really lyrical. I want to try to write lyrics on top of it because it's such a great melody. It lends itself to words. And that's Navarro, the trumpet player, who wrote the song and played it. He died when he was 26 years old, just at the brink, you know, of like his musicianship. So it's nice to hear, you know, that my lyrics to this beautiful melody and solo are connecting with people now. It's already been a beautiful song, but, you know, having words to it allows it to connect with more people. In the lyrics to this song, you make references to like 50 years ago and imagining my life without you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What puts you into that frame of mind where you're able to write in that way? I mean, I think of my grandparents. They got married April of 1950, and they were together until my grandmother passed in like 2008. So I think of them. I think of my parents. They've been married for 32 years now. I look at all of this love around me, and then I think about Fats Navarro and think about the love that he could have had, you know. What if he had lived long enough to see his impact, if he had lived long enough to experience the kind of love that I've seen my whole life? So I thought about that and thought about maybe what would he say if he had the chance to express that to somebody. So Hmm. I read that growing up, you weren't allowed to listen to rap. 
Your dad actually mm. gave you an iPod, <laughs> iPod with his music that he wanted you to listen to on mm. it, like Shaka Khan, <laughs> the Clark Sisters, Luther Vandross, no rap. Mm-mm. And I mean, they weren't like super strict, but like the one song that I love that that like reminds me of it is uh-huh. Bruno Mars' "Grenade." They were like, "You cannot sing that song. What are you talking about? I'll catch a grenade for you." <laughs> what? Throw my head on the blade? Do you, you know words have power? There's life and death in the power of the tongue. You're not singing about catching no grenade over somebody. So they were trying to set you on the straight and narrow path. They they were like, like no. "We're not having that." It's like no. That. Here's this iPod Touch to and from school. That's what I listen to. <laughs> your family is full of musicians and singers. How have they influenced your musicianship? They're everything. My number one album that I listened to was my family's album because they recorded a record before I was born. I know every single song on that record. I know each of my family's voices. I'm like, yep, that's my uncle. Mm-hmm, that's my cousin right there. That's my dad. Yeah, I remember this one. This is a hit, you know, it's a hit in my house. And so <laughs> everything from like the quality of my voice to like the artistic liberties that I take whenever I'm like singing a melody and stuff like that, it all uh-huh. comes from them. Like they were my literal foundation and my first inspiration. So, And you all recorded um, a song together at Christmas, Oh Holy Night. Oh no! Like to like after listening to to the album for so many years, you're like, okay, like we're all in the studio together. <laughs> what was that like? Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! It was so much fun. It was so much fun. We recorded in Philly um, to mm-hmm. be close to my grandfather because he's 92 now, and he sang he sang a verse on the song as well. But yeah, my cousins, my brother, my uncle, and my dad, we all got together and we sang, and I was just like. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm living my literal dream. And not only did we do that, we went on tour around Christmas time. We did four gigs together, back to back to back to back. And it was amazing. Every show sold out. It was incredible. It was incredible. Oh, that is so, I love this. <laughs> I'm so happy for y'all. That's such a cool thing to be able to do together at the holidays. I like did a little interview of my grandfather a couple weeks later. Um mm-hmm just to kind of ask him questions about his life and, you know, that kind of thing. And he was like, y'all got to do that again. I don't know what <laughs> has to happen, but y'all got to do that again. Okay. Look, Christmas 2023, let me know. I'll be Listen, there. We might, we might have a, a, a very special New York location in the books for 2023. Can't say too much now. <laughs> but, I'll be but, on the lookout. I'll be on the but lookout. it's in the books. It's in the books. You know, I I found it really interesting that you got into jazz, like in your last years of high Mm. school and really started singing it in college. You'd been hesitant for years to do it, but you had, um, you know, professors, peers, teachers that encouraged you. What about jazz music made you realize that like, this is what I got to do? I think it was the acoustic nature of it, like the stripped down, nothing but the instruments and voices kind of thing, you know, because I grew up listening to a lot of music. I grew up imitating some amazing singers, Layla Hathaway, just some of the most incredible singers ever. And 
I still felt kind of like a chameleon, I guess. Like I was like, I can, you know, imitate a little bit of this, imitate a little bit of that. But when I sing, where do I feel at home? But when I started listening to live recordings of Sarah Vaughan, it begins to tell around midnight, around midnight. And of Ella Fitzgerald. I do pretty Betty Carter. That's the time you feel so lonesome. And I was like, this is what I want to do. Like, it doesn't get old. You know, it doesn't sound mm. old to me. It sounds like they're contemporary in their own time. And so I was like, this is something I want to know more about. Contemporary mainstream <laughs> music is so different from jazz. And yet you are um, this Gen Z jazz star. How do you make music feel timeless as a Gen Z jazz singer? I don't know if there's any one way to make music feel timeless. And honestly, I don't know if that's the goal because there's so much music that is put out every single day. The goal is just to keep making music, to keep growing and to be be the best artist that you can be. And, you know, I don't know if Lauren Hill went into the studio like, okay, Ms. Education is about to be timeless. This is about to be the one. <laughs> Not about to make nothing else. This is going to be the timeless record. D'Angelo Voodoo, this is going to be it. I mean, we got to make a timeless record. Like, they just did it, you know? They were the best artists that they could be at that time, making art that they organically and naturally heard. And we end up with, you know, some of the greatest music of all time. So... I've heard you express this idea that jazz music is naturally progressive. Like, it's always going to be on the cutting edge stylistically. Yeah, I think that whenever I look at and listen to my heroes, again, they weren't trying to make something timeless. I think it's naturally progressive because it's not forced. As we play and as we practice and as we get better, the music just changes, you know, because we're coming into our individual artistry. That was jazz artist Samara Joy. Shortly after our interview, she won two Grammy Awards for Best Jazz Vocal Album and Best New Artist. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany, it's Marlo from Florida, and I wanted to know your thoughts on the recent U.S. Open match where Coco Gauff called out the chair umpire for not enforcing time violations. Marlo, 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 thank you so much for calling in with this question, because this has been on a lot of people's minds this week. For those of you who may have missed it, there was a dust up at the U.S. Open this week between American player Coco Gauff and her German opponent, Laura Sigmund. So throughout their three-set match, Sigmund was taking her sweet time in between serves, which Coco Goff and many viewers took to be like a stalling tactic meant to get under Goff's skin. And a lot of people felt like it should have been called out. But the umpire wasn't calling it out, even though Sigmund was really pushing it. So eventually, Goff was so upset that she approaches the umpire and she basically starts calling her out. 
you know, in this moment that has now since gone viral, she's telling her, hey, basically like, you know, like you're you're letting the clock run out. You're letting her take all this time to serve the ball and you should be calling this out. That's your job. The umpire tried to tell Coco that she played too fast, but Coco wasn't having that. She was like, no, I, I play a medium normal pace. Like, let's not start telling me that I play too fast and we're going by a clock. Coco, I have to give her credit because I would have been cussing and fussing. And and she kept her cool and was very direct and professional about it. But something remarkable happened after that. The crowd started clapping for Coco. Even the commentators, they were on Coco's side. They could see that there was some hypocrisy going on. Now, Coco ended up winning that match. But also, Coco Goff is a black woman and Laura Sigmund is a white woman. Speaking as a black American woman, it's remarkable to see something like this go down and have the court of public opinion sway toward the black woman. The sport of tennis is famously elitist, famously has issues um, with race, with diversity, you know, and, and that's something that's lasted for decades. That's something that Serena Williams, the greatest tennis player, arguably the greatest living athlete of our times, has spoken about on numerous occasions. I can't help but think about the 2018 U.S. Open women's final, wherein Naomi Osaka and Serena Williams were playing against each other on a major stage like that for the first time. During that match, Serena Williams got into it with the umpire. They had a heated exchange. Um, And the tennis world and the crowd and the commentators were not on Serena Williams' side. It was very interesting to see a similar situation play out uh, five years later and, and to see Coco Goff um, get a much more positive response than Serena Williams did and be offered so much more grace. Those are my thoughts and feelings about the whole situation. It really felt like a significant moment for me in the sport. Anyway, thanks again, Marlo, for calling in. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Alexis Williams, Liam McBain, Corey Antonio Rose, Jamal Michonne. It was produced and edited by Jessica Mendoza. Our editor is Jessica Placek. Engineering support came from Gilly Moon, Ted Mebane. We had fact checking help from Candace Bo Hortkamp. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of programming is Anya Grundman. All right, that's our show for today. I'm Brittany Luce. See you next week for another episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. These days, it can feel like the news is fighting for your attention wherever you turn, but staying informed shouldn't be a battle. Everything you need to navigate the stories that matter to you is at your fingertips. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download the NPR app in your app store today, or you can go to npr.org slash Hey, it's Aisha Roscoe from NPR's Up First podcast. I'm one of thousands of NPR Network voices coming to you from over 200 local newsrooms across the country. We bring all Americans closer together through free and independent journalism, music, politics, culture, and so much more. The NPR Network. What you hear changes everything. Learn more at npr.org network.
Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today.